Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Turn to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, but let me just read a verse while you're turning there from Isaiah chapter 43. Just listen to this. Isaiah 43 verse 25. I, this is God speaking, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Fairly famous verse, and even if you're not familiar with that specific verse, the concept of God forgiving and forgetting our sins is pretty common, right? I mean, even in just popular talk, people talk about forgiving and forgetting. But what does it really mean to forgive and to forget? Because the Bible also very clearly teaches God is omniscient. He knows all things. It's not that He literally forgets and doesn't know the sins that you have done. What does it really mean? And we want to dig into that today. Uh, two weeks ago, last time I was here, right, we talked about Joseph's brothers. And they had been forgiven, really forgiven. Joseph had really forgiven them. But as soon as Daddy died, they didn't feel forgiven. In some sense, they're like, he hadn't forgotten. He's holding on to it. He's waiting and now he's going to get us. I have a friend, and um, I think he's a believer. A lot of sin in his life, and at one point I was talking to him, and I was talking to him about the story about the prodigal son. This is a guy that was a member at Briarwood for at least a decade. And as he's listening, he said, I know. He said, I know that story. He said, and here's what happens. Here's my negative self-talk in my mind when I hear that story. It's like, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if God will treat me that way. Right? And sometimes we can be suspicious of God. Does he really forgive? Does he really forget? So we're going to look at the story of David this morning. Now, I'm going to assume that we all know the backstory. If you don't, go back and read 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the story of David's affair with Bathsheba and then his cover-up murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, abuse of power. It's terrible. Now listen, I don't know all of you personally, and even the ones that I do know fairly well personally, I don't know all your junk. <laughs> But I would even encourage you as we think about this lesson this morning, I want you to think about the worst sin you've ever done. And don't worry, I'm not going to get to the end and be like, now turn to your neighbor and share. Um, this can just between, be between you and the Lord. And, and I feel fairly certain I can say this. None of us have been in a position where we have used our power to murder somebody, literally. Right? We're like, well, I know the Sermon on the Mount. Hate is like murder. We've all, okay, fine. And this is like a man was literally dead. And power had been abused to kill him. Now, in light of that, we're going to pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we're going to look at Nathan the prophet confronting David. And it's helpful to remember, okay, in the Old Testament when the prophet spoke, it was just like God was speaking to you face to face. He's the mouthpiece of God. So here's David. And remember, again, if you don't remember he sleeps with Bathsheba, she gets pregnant, he kills her husband, and then we don't know exactly how long, but we know it was at least nine months of lies and cover-up because when Nathan does come to confront David, the baby's already been born. Total side note. Have you ever wondered, I wonder how long a real believer can be backslidden and hardened in their sins? At least nine months. I wouldn't make it into a personal life experiment. So, Nathan comes, he confronts him. I'm not even going to read all that. We're just going to pick up with David's response for the sake of time. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting verse 13. 
Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan then said to David, The Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. Now just pause because this is so important. If you could read this in the Hebrew, David's response is literally two words. You can't even really do it in English. It's like, sin against God. I sinned. That's it. And in some sense, you know, a lot of times people say the most powerful part for the end of the sermon. I mean, here's the most powerful part right at the beginning. He says, I sinned. And Nathan said, God, take your sin away. It's just that easy. There's no record of any tears. There's no record of, I'm really, I'm like super sorry. I feel terribly bad. I'll pay it back. There's none of that. There was no emotional penance. Don't you feel that way a lot of times? I do something really bad. I better really like gin up some tears when I get before God. There's none of that. And he just says, God's taking your sin away. It's gone. It's amazing. Now, there's no need for emotional groveling. One commentator named Davis said this, We still assume that the intensity of repentance contributes to the atonement. Right? Now, he also says this, He cleanses sin's defilement, but he may continue its discipline. Now listen, this is real repentance. This is instant forgiveness. It's instantly proclaimed. But, here, and this is so important, there are still going to be consequences to sin. And this is one of the themes of this morning. This is one of the themes of the Bible and certainly one of the themes of this story. There can be real forgiveness, real mercy, and yet still real consequences, right? I mean, think about it on just a small level. I remember one of my sons one time did really bad on some tests. And it wasn't just like, oh, we're not one of those families like, how dare you not get a hundred? It was like, you know, no, no, you just like almost failed all your exams. It's obvious. We know what you were doing. You were out, you know, playing PS4 all the time. And so we love you. We forgive you. We're not even really mad at you, right? This was back when he was in high school. It's like, it's not the end of the world, but we are taking your PS4 away, right? We're good relationally. No anger, no wrath, but there is discipline. And, and that good parenting principle, right? That ought to be obvious, right? Nobody's like, you're a terrible parent. <laughs> Is the same way that God responds to us, okay? Now listen, oftentimes there are themes in life and in the Bible that we can say mentally, yeah, I know that, I get that, but then really understanding how it plays out in our relationship with God is much more complicated, right? How can God fully forgive? Do some kind of forgiveness, Isaiah mentioned that, and yet there's still consequences and discipline? How those two things go together? And part of what the Bible does is so helpful sometimes is it gives us stories like this that makes it totally clear. So let's just go through this, okay? Um, before we do that, okay? Sorry, I'm just trying to... Keep your finger in 2 Samuel. We're coming right back. Flip over to Proverbs for just a second. Proverbs chapter 19. Proverbs chapter 19. Proverbs 19... And we'll start in verse 18. And just listen to this principle. Proverbs 19, verse 18. Discipline your son while there is hope, and do not desire his death. A man of great anger will bear the penalty. For if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. Listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. The point is, sometimes discipline, painful discipline is actually the most loving thing you can do for somebody, right? It's not a sign of your anger. It's a sign of your love sometimes to bring consequences. That's true in good parenting and is certainly true in the way that God treats us. But what does it really mean 
God forgets your sin, it means this, guys. He's not going to use it again to harm you. I mean, let's just skip to the, to the end of history. Sinners who don't repent, when they face the judgment seat of Christ, in a very real way, God is going to use their sin against them to harm them. I mean, sobering is not fun to talk about, right? But that's, that's what's going to happen. They are going to get damnation and wrath and judgment for all eternity because they never repented. If I'm in Christ, I don't get that. God's never going to use my sin against me to harm me. But He might remember my sin to give me fatherly chastisement. That hurts in the moment, but it doesn't really harm me. It actually benefits me, right? I mean, right? Probably most of us have said some version of this, or maybe our parents used to say it to us, you know, I'm going to spank you, son, but this hurts me a lot more than it hurts you. And it's like, I'm not sure if we really mean that when we say it. Because sometimes it's like, I'm really excited to spank you right now. <laughs> You've been making my life miserable. Okay? But there is a good, again, principle there. It's like, I don't enjoy, a good parent, and certainly God the Father, doesn't enjoy bringing pain into his children's life. But he loves the child so much, he's willing to hurt the child in the short run to help the child in the long run. Now, let's read the whole story. All right, back, back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 chapter, Samuel chapter 12. We read verse 13. Let's pick up verse 14. However, however, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Now, some of us may just stop right there and say, Olin, you took your son's PS4 away. I get it. God killed his baby. How can that ever be a good thing? Fair question. But that question really reveals the depths of our hearts. And here's what I mean. The greatest and highest good ought to be our intimacy with our Heavenly Father. But just, again, just go real deep for a second. God said, hey, i got to do something in your life. I'm going to take one of your kids. Most of us, myself included, would probably pitch a fit, right? And what does that show? That at some fundamental level, I love my relationship with my kid more than I love my relationship with you. Which is a form of idolatry. It's nice, white-collar, domesticated idolatry. It is idolatry nonetheless. And God is such a jealous lover, He will do whatever it takes to capture our hearts for Him. Derek Kidner said, Sin always destroys intimacy, but suffering can deepen intimacy. Sin will always ruin your intimacy with God. Right? But suffering, no matter how painful, if you respond to it the right way, can actually deepen your intimacy with God. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15. So Nathan went to his house, then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. Just notice verse 15. It's kind of like God saying, in my mind, that's the main way I think about this woman. She's Uriah's widow before she's your wife, David. 
David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling, and he would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and he requested food. They set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing you have done? When the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live but now he has died why should I fast can I bring him back again I will go to him but he will not return to me then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in to her and lay with her and she gave birth to a son and he named him Solomon now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake now Joab fought against Rabah of the royal of the sons of Ammon and captured the royal city and Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabah. I have even captured the city of waters. Now therefore, gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and capture it, or I will capture the city myself, and it will be named after me. So David gathered all the people. We'll stop there. Listen, what's the point that I'm trying to make by reading all that? A couple of things. I mean, this, this, this text is so rich. Have you ever wondered, how do I know if I've really repented of my sin? Here's, here's, a, here's a short answer. Real repentance has weeping and worship. I don't literally mean tears, okay? Although that didn't hurt. But there's a grief over what I did, but it's a joyful grief because I'm back in fellowship with my Father and I'm worshiping again. I'm sorry that I offended you, Father, but thank you so much that you're taking me back. That's real biblical Christian grace-oriented repentance. I hate what I did, but I don't feel like I have to go be the dunce in the corner I'm not estranged from you. I'm back in. There's both weeping and worship. No, David has this. If you only see the depth of your sin, you'll weep and you'll be lost in self-hatred and despair. I'm such a loser. I'm so evil. How could God ever love me again? If you only have the worship part, you're going to be shallow and a grace abuser. Now, yeah, you're going to be a libertine. Who cares what I did? God's merciful. I do whatever the heck I want. You have to have both. You have, Kidner says you have to have chastened awe. I've been disciplined, but I'm still in awe of who God is. Now, you get the story, right? Nathan says, God says, I'm going to kill your baby. The baby gets sick. David literally, like, lays on the ground for a week, won't eat, won't get up, won't do anything, begging God, have mercy on my kids. Servants are like, please get up and eat something. Get away from me. Then the baby dies, and the servants are like, Look how miserable he was when the baby was sick. Now the baby's dead. He'll probably kill himself. David figures out what's going on. Is the kid dead? Yep. You notice what David did? Here's the easiest summation of what David did. He went back to life as total normal, didn't he? He got up. He took a bath. He got something to eat. He went to church. He went home. He comforted his wife, who now is called, referred to as Bathsheba. They make love again. She gets pregnant again. They get the announcement of a kid again. And then he goes back into battle. And you kind of read this and you're like, what's wrong with David? 
What's right with David? He got it. He got the depth of God's mercy. He really understood grace. Most of us do not. David really did. God hated my sin and God disciplined me pretty severely. But now it's over. Me and God are good again. I'm going back to normal life. I mean, guys, you know, I don't want to get off on this, but we're all big boys and girls. Let's just think about this for a second. This whole sin started with the lust and the adultery. Can you imagine how awkward it might be to go back and sleep with that woman again? You just had a child that was lost? But there was this kind of emotional healing between him and David. It's like, it's over. Again, this is hard for us to imagine, but put yourself in the shoes of a parent again. Haven't you ever done something where your kid has done something really bad? And maybe you discipline them really hard. But then you're like hugging them. It's like, it's over. I know I just spanked you really hard. And you deserved a really hard spanking. But I want you to, I'm not mad at you. I really forgive you. We can be friends again. Let's go eat ice cream together. And we kind of feel that way. But our kids are like, I don't believe you. And oftentimes we feel that way with God. But David had real repentance and he had real restoration. Now, how did he do it so quickly? Because he really understood the depth and the width and the breadth of God's mercy. In some ways better than I think we often do. So flip over to Psalm chapter 32. That's David's repentance. That's David's restoration. Now let's look at David's rejoicing. Psalm chapter 32, which... Most commentators would say it was probably written after his sin with Bathsheba and in reference to it. And for time's sake, we're not going to read the whole thing. Okay? So let's just let's start. Psalm chapter 32, verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. You ever had that experience? You've sinned and you're trying to lie and you're trying to cover it up and it's almost like you're physically sick. The conviction's so heavy. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, the whole psalm's good, but just skip down to verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. I mean, this psalm is interesting because it talks a lot about his sin, the hardness, the deceit, the conviction, but the overwhelming theme of this psalm is happiness, joy, restoration. Our sin is great, but where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. His grace is bigger, it's better, it's deeper. Okay? There can be stains, there can be scars, but it's covered over. It's healed. The sin is literally lifted away, taken away. One commentator named Willick said this, Happy are those who aren't righteous, but they know what to do about it. They know where to take their sin. They know who to confess their sin to. It's like he's confessing all the sin, but he gets drowned in God's mercy. Tim Keller says, He removes our subjective shame so we don't remain in inner angst. And did you notice in the very first verse there, okay? First two verses, it's talking about transgression, it's talking about sin, it's talking about iniquity. These are kind of the three different words. Like any kind of sin you can imagine, guys. 
anything that's perverse, anything that's twisted, anything that's missing God's law, anything that's rebellious, anything that's breaking God's word can be forgiven if we just confess. Um, Flip over to Psalm 51 for just a second. We'll just look at a couple of verses here. Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Let me just say this really fast. It's so important when you are going to God in the place of repentance that you don't say, God, please have mercy on me because I really mean it this time. I'm really sorry. You see what David says? He says, God, have mercy on me because I just know that's your character. I'm not here pleading my character. I'm pleading your character. You're a merciful God. You like to forgive sin. That's what you do. You're in the business of forgiving sin. So I'm coming in to cash in on your merciful character. That's our hope. Because listen, guys, if the ground of our hope is how sincere our repentance is, that's pretty shaky, isn't it? Right? Because if God, like all of a sudden, audibly spoke to us and said, on a scale of 1 to 10, how serious is your repentance? We'd be like, oh, wait a second. I don't know. I hope it's at least a 6. You know, but now that you're speaking to me face to face, I don't feel so good about my repentance anymore. Guys, he doesn't do that. He's not up there evaluating the purity of our repentance. If there's anything sincere, if there's anything genuine, he shows his full mercy. Look at verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. They're blotted out. The record is wiped clean. Now, here's a question we really want to ask this morning. How did David do such a good job of receiving God's forgiveness, right? Two weeks ago, we looked at Joseph's brothers. They did not receive God's forgiveness well. They didn't receive Joseph's forgiveness well. But David is this amazing example of repentance. He was really broken. But what he's really a better example of is how he really got God's grace, and it went down into the fundamental basement of his heart, and it changed his life. So flip over to Psalm chapter 103. Psalm 103. How could David repent so well, be restored so well, and then rejoice so well as he was remembering? He was remembering. So let's look at Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. God blesses us when he sees our neediness and he says, I can help you. I can fill in places in your life where you're needy. We bless God when we kind of experience his sufficiency and we give him praise for the way he's filled us up. Okay, Derek Kidner again. David is rousing himself to shake off apathy and gloom. He's using his mind and his memory to kindle his emotions. Tim Keller, we are not helpless before our emotions. Meditation is a very assertive way of bringing the truth to our own hearts and emotions, sometimes almost beating them into submission. It's just kind of a side note. Have you ever wondered, you may be saying, like, I've been a Christian a long time. You know, I try to wake up in the morning and read my Bible and pray. It's like, what what am I really supposed to do when I'm, like, reading the Bible and praying? What's the point? At some level, what you're supposed to really be trying to do is take the truth of God's Word and beat it into your heart until you start to feel and sense the reality of it. I mean, this, 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 
quote by Keller has changed my life in many ways. We are not helpless before our emotions. And just a side note, the current generation and culture of the day does not believe that. Well, that's the way I felt. Like that's an excuse to just cover everything. Now listen, I'm not saying we can 100%. You know, the old school way is just as much an error as the new school way at some level. Your emotions don't matter. Just control your emotions. How's that work for you? Like a volcano, you just stuff and stuff and stuff, and eventually it's going to blow up. The biblical way is, you know, I can't totally control my emotions. I'm not that powerful. But nor do I have to be totally controlled by my emotions. Through prayer and meditation and maybe counseling and accountability and stuff, I can, by God's grace, begin to bring my emotions in line with God's truth. And that's what I need to do. Rather than letting my emotions just take my thinking off on the runaway train. But guys, it's work. It's daily work. All that is within me. David's saying, all, every part of me bows and worships you, God. Forget none of his benefits. Keller has another quote where he talks about rational laziness. So much of the sin of Christians is because of rational laziness. We don't live in light of the truth that we already know. Think about your favorite sport. Baseball, you know, football, tennis, golf, whatever. Sometimes you might be, let's say you're out playing tennis, and you're actually a good tennis player, but this day you're having a terrible day on the tennis court. Like, what's wrong with me? And then you remember, you know what? I'm not rolling my wrist the right way. It's not that, you know, when you swing your racket, it's not that you're like, I never knew I was supposed to roll my wrist. But whatever had happened in the heat of the moment, you'd forgotten it. And then when you bring that truth back to your memory, you start to do it better. It's the same thing in our walk with God, guys. We can often forget His mercy, forget His benefits. You know, practically, what does this look like? Let me, let me share two examples. One, some of y'all probably heard me share before. When my kids were younger, you know, I don't have to do this anymore, praise the Lord. And they would come and they'd be griping about something. My life stinks, Dad, because I don't have the newest iPhone and all my friends have the new. You know, I want to have a conversation about a new iPhone. And I'm like, I'm not having a conversation with you when you get that attitude, you know. And uh, I want to talk about it right now. So listen, do this for me. Go in your room, get a pen and a piece of paper, and write down 30 good things in your life. And then come back and we'll have a, I can't even think of 30 good things. Okay, good. <laughs> Give me your old iPhone. I will take that away until you, oh, okay, I'll try my best. And they'd come back. Now, I'm not saying they wouldn't want the new iPhone anymore, but their heart would be a little bit humble when they started to think about what a great life they had. Make sense? My wife, this is just yesterday, and I don't think she'd mind me sharing this to you. She's got one thing in her life right now that's pretty hard and frustrating. And she went on a kind of walk to pray. She came back and she said, you know, part of what I was doing, she said, I was just trying to recount to myself all the way God's blessed me. I'm healthy. The weather's nice. I can get outside and walk. I mean, even just the basic normal things that we take for granted. And it's like the one bad thing, the one hard thing, just seems to kind of get minimized when we are active in meditating on all the good. Now, in conclusion, all right, um, Joseph's brothers, think, remember guys, Joseph's brothers couldn't receive Joseph's forgiveness fully and deeply in a transformative way. Why? Because they were so focused on how bad their sin was. When somebody would say to Joseph's brothers, tell us a story of what happened between you and Joseph, they were overwhelmed with the magnitude of what we did was so evil, it was so bad. And it was. 
but they weren't having the proper sense of shock and awe with how good and gracious Joseph had been. Listen, nothing that I'm saying this morning, and more important, nothing the Bible is saying this morning, should make us try to minimize our sin. Like, oh, sin's not a big deal. No, sin is a gigantic deal. It's terrible. It's evil. It's wicked. It's just that God's mountain of mercy is so much more. So think about this and we're done. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, we won't do it. Guess who shows up in the lineage of Christ? King Solomon. Bathsheba. See, in the midst of David's worst, most evil, most heinous sin, God was doing something even bigger and better that David could have never imagined. Through David's sin of bloodshedding, trace it down about 14 generations, and another child, another true king was going to be born that would have his blood shed one day to forgive all of David's sin. Listen, guys. There is no such thing as plan B in the Christian life. God is so sovereign that even our most wicked sins are used by Him to accomplish His good purposes. If you or I ever use that on the front end of sin to justify our sin, you had not been paying attention to this lesson, right? It's not worth it. The pain will not be worth it. But on the back end of sin, when the sin is done and you're grieving, it is a great way to counsel and console your own heart. God is so sovereign that He takes even our worst sins and tragedies, He turns them into triumphs. Our sin is wicked, it's huge, it's bad, it's evil, but it pales in comparison to the mercy that has come out of His Son, life and death and resurrection in our place. And that's what we've got to continually call to mind to believe. God, really not going to use my sin to harm me. In some way, He's going to use it to bless me. That's how rich and deep His mercy is. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that these biblical truths that we know in our minds would sink down into the depths of our heart and they would change us. Make us into people that are in such awe of Your mercy that we wouldn't want to sin. We would be such in love with You that it would transform us. But when we do fall, when we do sin, I pray that we will be quick to run back to the mercy that has already been bought and paid for by the blood of Your Son. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. Thank you.